Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. When the seventh month arrived and the sons of Israel were settled in the towns, the people gathered together as one man in Jerusalem. Then Yahuwah, son of Joshua, his fellow kinsman, Zerubbabel, the son of Zetalel, and his associates began to build the altar of God of Israel in order to offer burnt offerings, as is written in the Torah of Moses, the man of God. They set up the altar on its fixed resting place, despite their fears, peoples of the lands, they offered burnt offerings on it to Adonai, both, both morning and evening sacrifice. They also kept the Feast of Sukkot, as it is written, and offered the prescribed number of daily burnt offerings according to the requirement for each day. After they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all of the sacred Moedim of Adonai, as well as all the free will offerings brought to Adonai, from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to Adonai, through, although the foundation of the temple of Adonai had not yet been laid. So they gave money to the stonemasons and carpenters, and food, beverages, and oil to the Sidonians and to the Tyrans to bring cedar trees by the sea from Lebanon to Joppa as offerings by King Cyrus of Persia. In the second month of the second year, after they had come to the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Zetalig, Yahuwah, son of Zodizak, and the rest of their brothers, the Kohanim, the Levites, and all who returned from captivity to Jerusalem began to work. They appointed the Levites from 20 years of age and older to supervise the work on the house of Adonai. Then Yahuwah, his sons and his brothers, Kedemil and his sons, the sons of Judah, stood together to supervise those working in the house of God, along with the sons of Hanadad, their sons, and their brothers, the Levites. When the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of Adonai, the Kohanim, arrayed in their vestments with clarins, and Levites, the son of Aspera, with cymbals, were stationed to praise Adonai as prescribed by King David of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to Adonai, for he is good, for his mercy upon Israel endures forever. Then the people gave a great shout of praise to Adonai 
because the foundation of the house of Adonai had been laid. Thank you, Paula. Just to clarify, in case you came away confused, um, thinking that I was on the extreme left of the political spectrum, I, I wanted to uh, simply remind you folks of the uh, picture that we have of Yeshua and how he built bridges uh, with those who were different than, than he was. And of course, Paul did the same, but Yeshua uh, sat down and talked to a Samaritan woman. And so the, the point of what I was sharing before is simply for us to realize that our number one job is not to convey political agenda, but to convey the good news of Yeshua. And the good news of Yeshua is two facts. That he died according to Scripture, that he rose from the dead according to Scripture. That's it, folks. Everything else is secondary, tertiary, quaternary, etc. You get my, my drift. Um, I mentioned briefly, and I wanted to park on that um, just before the break, that um, on December 7th, I know that's uh, Pearl Harbor Day, but uh, uh, we are expecting not to be destroyed by, by bombs, but to be blessed. Yes? You're not sure. Well, I'll tell you. Uh, we're calling for a day of prayer and fasting, uh, specifically focused for the building. And um, as we've mentioned from time to time, um, this campaign we have set for a year, uh, we're not foolish enough to think that God will operate strictly according to our timetable. This is just something we felt led to do. And um, as we mentioned um, I and others have mentioned that we're going to take a break uh, during the uh, Moadim, during the, the fall festivals, and resume in November and December uh, until the spring festivals. Uh, for us also, on the 12th, we uh, had Ira Brower come and share about the need for transformation and inner healing, uh, which is a major emphasis for us because we pray a lot for transformation to take place in each one of us. That's inner work. And then last Shabbat we had um, Daryl Fenton emphasizing the need for outreach because that's also a major part of who we are. All that to say that for us, the building is not merely about bricks. The building is first and foremost about a spiritual building. And we always zoom in to the passage of Scripture that says that we are a building of living stones, which means that God somehow takes us, different background, different perspective on, on a bunch of things, and somehow shapes us together. And sometimes, you know, there are rough edges. Uh, well, in me, I don't know about the rest of you, but... And uh, he has to... Uh, shape those uh, living stones together. And so what God had been doing all along to craft a spiritual building, we anticipate that he will be doing through the process of the building campaign, 
And then as, as God brings us into a physical building, that the spiritual building uh, process will continue because that's really what, what this is all about, folks. It is building the kingdom of God. Um, it is not um, strategizing according to man's opinion. And you know how it is. You have the experts that come and say, uh, if, if you are uh, 80% capacity, then you have to instantly find a place or else you will shrink. And then once you find a place, then you will grow. Well, interesting theories that sometimes work. However, our confidence is not in demographic theories. Our confidence is first and foremost in the Lord. Amen? And so our emphasis has been through all of this to, first of all, look to see what God wants to do. Now, we've been blessed so far through this building campaign. We have had a lot of enthusiasm. We've had some heartfelt giving, and I really have no clue who did what, when, where. But that's part of the picture. There has been transformation and change in spiritual growth through the process because I know from having talked to a number of people that lots of folks have come into this with awful uh, baggage from the past about, okay, here's a building campaign. This is how we fleece the sheep. Uh, you know, we put on the moves, et cetera, et cetera. And we wanted to emphasize, no, this is not God's way of doing things. We put the need out there, as the Word of God does on a number of occasions, particularly in the building of, a, of the tabernacle. Uh, the Word went out, and the Spirit of God stirred people, and they brought all kinds of stuff according to what they were able to. And as we will see here in Ezra and in other places, and so our expectation has been all along that the Spirit of God will stir people and, yes, make the commitment financially and, and um, uh, give the faith commitment pledges, even though that <laughs> makes people squirm. But beyond that, Stand before God in, together as a congregational mishpacha and say, God has gifted me in a number of different ways, and I want to give from that to build his building here at Yeshua Zion. So that is why we are asking folks to consider praying on the 7th from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Part of that will be uh, up in the Mount Albert building. We'll pray corporately. But we want to seek God for clear direction, for open doors, for continued unity of vision, for the needed finances, and that God will work out his good pleasure through this building process. And from time to time, you have heard Lee and others uh, give you uh, specific details uh, about what's been going on, about uh, the building committee seeing some buildings and so on and so forth. We will endeavor to keep you updated on all of that, but we first of all wanted to put, put out there before everybody that this is first and foremost a spiritual process. So uh, that's why we ask for your consideration for the day of prayer and fasting on December 7th. 
which will not be the day in, uh, the day that shall come down in the annals of, of infamy, but in the annals of blessing. If you know history, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, don't worry about it. Let's pray already. Thank you, Lord, for your greater purposes. We love you, Lord, and thank you for the privilege you give us to serve you. And thank you, Lord God, for bringing us together and fashioning us into a mishpacha. And thank you, Lord, that uh, you have a plan, a master plan, and you have the power and the means to bring it into reality. So, Lord, we stand before you and simply ask that you will continue to lead us. Speak to us, Lord God, through your word. We ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Chapter 3 begins uh, on the heels of a couple of chapters, as you can imagine. Uh, chapters 1 and 2. And it assumes that we know a certain amount of things. So I wanted to take a few minutes and uh, rewind the tapes, in a sense, and go back to chapter 1, just skipping around a little bit so that we have a basic idea of what's going on. And so, if you would, turn to chapter 1 uh, of Ezra. And I just wanted to read a couple of verses and uh, talk a bit about it and then come to chapter 3. Uh, Ezra chapter 1, verse one verses 1 and 2. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, this is in Jeremiah 29.10, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the king of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him in Jerusalem in Judah. And then he invites everybody who um, is, uh, uh, feels stirred. Anyone, verse 3, anyone of his people among you, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. Now, lots of things about this are odd, to say the least. Here you have a pagan king, a Zoroastrian, um, who speaks about a direct message that has been communicated to him by the God of Israel. Now, just to step back a little bit, we often think that God is handicapped, that he can only speak in certain manners to certain people at certain times. We tend to put God in a box. We don't understand that he can speak to everybody through anything and everything. Case in point, the donkey. I always, that's one of my favorite uh, models. If God can speak through the donkey, ergo he can speak through me and the rest of us. And we see in, on a number of occasions, we see that even with King Nebuchadnezzar. Again, pagan hearing clearly from God and recognizing the need to engage in action. And um, you may be aware of the, the proverbial statement in Proverbs 21.1, 1, 
The heart of the king is in the Lord's hand, and he moves it like he moves the water course, which is a huge and crucial reminder for us, especially on the heels of this election, that we need to remember that regardless of what takes place down here as far as facts on the ground, God is actively at work to carry out his sovereign plan and purpose. And God's sovereignty involves two basic things. It involves the fact that God has a plan that he has designed way back here and that God has the power, the necessary power, to bring into reality that particular vision. So when we are obsessed with the reality of the facts on the ground, we need to step back and remember the simple reality that's, that begins in the heavenlies and works its way down. That the heart of the king is in God's hand. And here, this is a clear example. Um, God had laid out a plan that was spoken through the prophet Jeremiah about Israel being brought back to the land. And God sees Cyrus, the pagan, as his boy, so to speak. We see that particularly in Isaiah 44 and 45, where the Lord refers to Cyrus as my shepherd. In other words, a shepherd that I have tasked and designated to do my work. In Isaiah 45, it goes even farther. The Lord refers to Cyrus as my anointed, Mashiach, my Mashiachi that God has called to, to do a particular work. And we have to realize that this required significant amount of work, particularly to overcome the inertia, not so much with the Persians and Babylonians, but with the Jewish people. Now think about what had taken place uh, 70 years or so before that. A horrific tragedy had taken place in Jerusalem, something equivalent to the Holocaust uh, of that day. Um, hundreds of thousands of people had, had died. The temple was destroyed. The house of God that symbolized for the people of Israel God's commitment to the nation, that had been destroyed. The people had been hauled off not too pleasantly, into exile. And eventually they settled down. They built houses, they got married, and so on and so forth. They became comfortable. And so the notion of uprooting themselves and moving a couple of thousand miles back to the place where they had experienced this brutality, you can understand that that was not something people were particularly interested in. And we're not talking about a simple trip where you go to DIA, hop on a, on a plane, and after several hours you're there. We're talking about months of travel um, through a very difficult terrain, uh, including having to deal with robbers and, and coming. And when you finally arrive, you don't have a welcoming committee. You don't have a brass band and people uh, having big 
sign saying, Welcome you Jews from Babylon. What we find as we go through Ezra and Nehemiah is that the Jewish community, the, the returning exiles, were surrounded by enemies on all three sides. And of course, on the fourth side, it was, it was the sea. Um, and so you can understand why there was a great deal of inertia. And so um, as we go through chapter, chapters 1 and 2 of Ezra, and, and we see the list and the, uh, the summation, we're told that 50,000 people from the exiles made a decision to come to the land. Now that's a tiny proportion of all the folks who had been uh, exiled to Babylon. Maybe 3 million, uh, 50,000 out of 3 million or so. And so you can understand that this had to involve the power of God at work, first of all, with the king who would give them the authority to, to do that, and then secondly, with the people whose hearts would be stirred. And this is something we'll come back to in, in just a bit where we see that over and over and over again, what is involved here is, first of all, the matter of the heart. And so Cyrus recognizes the fact that people have to be stirred in their heart to be motivated to pick up and leave and come and uh, build God's house. Now, Cyrus, the pagan, gets it. And so part of the picture, he's saying to them, um, I'm not giving you just a bunch of words. I'm also going to see to it that materials comes along with it. And in verse, verse 4, he's, he puts it this way, the people of any place where survivors may now be living, uh, to provide him with silver and gold and goods and livestock and free will offering for the temple of the God of in, the God in Jerusalem. Now, we're not absolutely sure what he meant by the people of the land. It's quite possible that he is referring to the Jewish people who chose not to come, and Cyrus is, is saying to them, you guys who are staying put better see to it that you open your coffers and you give gold and silver and livestock and other provision for your brothers and sisters who are coming to the land. It's quite possible. Another possibility or unlikely is the fact that uh, he's instructing the people, uh, the non-Jewish people of the land um, to give gold and silver, etc., to the people who are returning from exile. And then in addition to that, he also puts his money where his mouth is, and he opens the treasury of the Persian Empire and instructs the, the treasurer to bring out the golden, uh, instru the, the, the golden um, elements uh, the menorah and, and the, the altar of, of incense and so on that the Babylonians hauled off and he is instructing the treasurer of Persia to take that and give to the Jewish people then who are to come to, uh, to the land in order for them to have the material to get started with the process. And it was a process 
And there are a number of things that jumped out at me as I, as I read chapter 3. Um, and so I wanted to, to begin with verse 1 and go over some of these. First of all, we're told that, uh, in this, that the, the Israelites came, they had settled in the towns, and they had assembled as one man in Jerusalem. Now, if you know anything about the history of Jewish people in Israel, you'll understand that the notion of our people gathering together as one man uh, is something akin to the parting of the Red Sea. You know, you may have heard the saying, you've got two Jews, you have three opinions, you have three Jews, you have five opinions, and the number increases exponentially. Uh, you know, we may think of Judges, there was a particularly egregious example of that where we're told in two places that in those days everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Well, we are there today, in case you haven't noticed. Um, so the notion of people coming together in unity is something that requires the power of God to be exerted on people. And that's our conviction at Yeshua Tzion. That, uh, that our mishpacha is comprised of people that come and explore, but first of all, are here with us and, and draw and become part of us because God brings them and draws them. And so in Scripture, whenever we see the notion of unity, we know it has to involve divine power at work. Remember that in John 17, in Yeshua's high priestly prayer, he mentions at least three times that a major focus of his prayer to the Father was that his disciples would be one. And he mentions that again and again. Why? Because we're not particularly inclined to be one. Think of it. You know, we have a wide diversity here, and we can disagree on anything and everything. And so the fact that here in Ezra chapter 3 we see that the people are together is an expression of the power of God. Then it, in verse 2 and 3 and 4 it continues, they began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Then to verse 4, then in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the Feast of, of Tabernacles or Sukkot with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. You notice that the word written or according to what is written is something that is repeated again and again. In other words, the people, part of what is taking place supernaturally is that the people realize that they need to bulldog what the Word of God says. That they cannot have a lackadaisical attitude and say, eh, all right, you know, I'll take it or leave it, but rather that they grab it with both hands and both feet and they are committed to putting it into practice. And again, realize that for a community of that size, what they're doing is significant amount of of giving because on, on, on the, the festival of Sukkot, people would bring 70 burn offerings and, all, and then you have 
uh, on each day there would be the morning and the evening and then for all the other special holidays, you have an awful lot of giving being done on the part of a relatively small community. And these folks somehow are committed to the Word of God. Now let's back up for a minute and remember that 80 years before, under the reign of King Josiah, people had no clue what the Torah was. In fact, a high official in the king, under the King Josiah, Shaphan the secretary, which was really more than just secretary, he was probably uh, an administrator in a court, finds the Torah scroll and he comes to the king and he said, we found this book. And you want to say, hello? You are who? And you, you point to this as a book? And Josiah himself had no clue. Now, we're talking about 80-year difference. And here, under Ezra, the people get the fact that the Word of God has to play a central part in their life as is the case for us. The Word of God has to play a central focal point in our life. Now, you think that this was a piece of cake for them. Realize in verse 3, notice the fact that the word fear is mentioned. Despite the fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation. Now, the truth is we all have fear buttons, Right? And the right circumstances, our fear buttons get pushed. Well, I guess I'm the only one who has that issue. We're not talking about fear, uh, regular standard issue kind of fear. We're talking about dread. The Hebrew word imam means dread, fear, horror, uh, terrible fear. In other words, they knew and understood the opposition that they were dealing with, the fact that they were surrounded. Now, they really hadn't experienced anything concrete at this point. They will as you go into chapter 4 and 5 of Ezra. At this point, it was probably only rumors, but the people had a great deal of fear, but they were not paralyzed and neutralized by their fear. Why? Because their focus was on... God's instruction in the Torah and their need to follow and obey it. So yes, their fear buttons were pushed, but the bigger issue, the bigger focus for them was their need to obey what God had put before them. And I want to pause here for a minute uh, because for us in life circumstances, when we consider what God wants for us, what God has for us to do, we often deal with the, the handicap or the stumbling block of fear in our path and where we feel somewhat paralyzed and incapable of taking steps that God wants us to take because of that fear. And the people of, of Israel, the Jewish people at this point, trust God to such an extent that even though 
the fear is there. They're saying, we're going to press forward. Now, the other thing that jumped out at me, and there are a couple more things that really spoke to me, is the fact that they're doing what they're doing, not half-heartedly, as if to say, okay, here it is, I'm doing it because I'm, I, I've been commanded to do it. If I, if I don't do it, God is going to come on me like a ton of bricks. No, what you have repeated through chapters 1 and 2 and 3 is this expression of free will offering. Now, unfortunately, free will offering doesn't get the underlying Hebrew connotation. The Hebrew word there, nedava, means basically has to do with generosity. People gave not because somebody put a gun to them, but people gave because they were stirred and motivated, and they said, "Yes." Again, you can make the the uh, you can draw the lines between what is taking place here and what took place in the construction of the tabernacle, where people were so motivated that they came and Moses finally had to say, enough already! So we, we see that they're uh, generous. Uh, they go above and beyond, uh, not only pr bringing what was required, but they're bringing uh, thank offerings. And then the final aspect that jumped out at me is despite the work, despite the giving, what is produced here is an attitude of praise to God. And folks, that's the proof in the pudding. If you do what you do out of compulsion and obligation or, God forbid, manipulation, then the result will leak out. And that is resentment. However, if you are stirred by the Spirit of God and you respond, what will come forth was an attitude of praise and adoration for God because you and Him are on the same page. And you are partnering with Him and there is joy in seeing that come about. So the builders, uh, the, the first process here was building the, the altar. Again, that's for me very um, instructive because for us, number one priority for us needs to be establishing God's altar in our life. In other words, a time and a place when we sit down or stand and have a conversation with God and read his word and listen to him and sing his praises. That has to be the focal, the beginning point of our day each, each and every day. Then the second part of this has been the laying of the foundation of the temple. Verses 10 and 11, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols, took their, their places to praise the Lord as described by David, the king of Israel. Remember him. He was the one that uh, uh, was known for Goliath and for Bathsheba. He was known for a lot more than that. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord. The Lord is good. His love for Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord. 
because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So as you look through those two verses, you see that everybody, everybody was involved in the process of giving thanks and praise. And, and I know uh, for some of us, um, worship is a steep learning curve. It certainly was that way for me. You know, the Lord and I had, the relationship was based on the Word and, and, and uh, cognitive communication, you know, God's brain to my brain. And at some point as we became part of the Messianic community and we sing each Shabbat, you shall love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, and soul. At some point, it began to filter through this uh, thick titanium um, case here that what God wants is my emotional response to him. And my thought was, uh, okay, God, uh, no can do. Wife can do that. She is, she is a wonderful worshiper. Um, no can do. And at some point I realized that really wasn't something God was uh, eager to hear. And so I began to pray and say, Lord, uh, would you change the internal mechanism here so that I too can learn to praise you? And each of us, if we are in a healthy spiritually, in a healthy place spiritually, we learn and understand and become eager to worship and praise God. Each of us, 100% compliance. Because here you see everybody across the board participating. You see the, um, the, the priest blowing the silver trumpets, you see the Levites banging on the cymbals. You see the Levitical choir singing, Hodula Adonai ki tov ki leolam chazdo. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his love, his chesed endures forever. And then you see the rank and file just giving a big yell, uh, Yay God! <laughs> and the entire community that was assembled there praised and worshipped God. But again, folks, remember all of that began way back here in God's mind and heart, in God's plan, in God's power at work on this pagan king who understood somehow that to rule wisely you needed to give people an opportunity for them to to worship according to their religious customs. That was really mostly self-serving. It wasn't so much that Cyrus was uh, at this point a believer in God, but he understood that people needed the freedom. So it went from, it went from that to him issuing the decree to people hearing it. And I can imagine the first time they heard it, they probably went, What? And eventually they were motivated and stirred by the Spirit of God. They took the 2,000-mile trip. They came to the land. They were scared out of their gourd because they knew there was a great deal of opposition. But they built the house. They built the altar of God. They brought all kinds of offerings above and beyond. They began the foundation of the temple 
And they were absolutely delighted. And folks, this is the, the point that we come to again and again when we talk about the building at Yeshua Tzion. That if we're doing things according to God's plan and His purpose and His working with us, then what will take place is that each of us will be stirred in the Spirit to contribute according to what God has given us, to what God has instructed us to give. And it will not be minimal. It will be above and beyond for this particular purpose. And we will build what God has called us to build, not just physically, but spiritually as, as a, an equipping center, a place where people can come and receive healing and restoration and be properly discipled and mentored and do the work of the kingdom of God for us to be a lighthouse in the darkness or an outpost of the kingdom of God. And all through that, there will be the continued work that God does in us. And the result, somehow through all of that, will be that God will receive a great deal of honor and praise. If we do it according to his plan, that that will be the result. And I want, I want to put it out there t for you all to consider it, for all of us to consider, to pray not just on the 7th, but to pray throughout these next coming months that the Lord will lead us and open the doors for us. And not just for a physical building, but for the work that needs to take place in us as a congregational mishpacha, as a spiritual family. So then that the Lord will receive all kinds of kudos in this weird and wacky world. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord God, for how you challenge us We thank you, Lord, for your ruach that stirs us, that provokes us to good works, that convicts us of sin and of, of the sin of unbelief when we're not willing to trust you and instead we park on our fear. Lord God, we, we thank you that you're persistent and faithful with us, that you keep coming back again and again and again. And that your love is inexhaustible. And we thank you, Lord God, for each one of us, for how you've been working with us, for bringing us to this day. And thank you, Lord God, for what you've been doing with us as a mishpacha, as a congregational family. Thank you, Lord God, for the work that you have prepared for us up ahead. And we trust you, Lord God, that as we seek you in prayer and fasting, Throughout the next uh, few days and next few weeks, we pray, Lord God, that each one of us would hear from you, hear clearly from you, and know what is the role that you have for us to serve, and that we would pull together as, as one man, one, one woman, and we will do it joyfully, and that you would receive much honor and glory. Lord God, we, we pray that you would speak to us and that your word would lodge deeply, bear much fruit. 
In Yeshua's name, amen.